Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing Podcast. I'm your host, Bob St. Pierre, and I have a very good friend making his uh, debut on our podcast. He is the editor of Cubby Rise, uh, co- connecting with me from his home in Brainerd, Minnesota, the one and only Matt Sober. Matt, how are you? Not too bad, Bob. Um, hanging in there, just trying to get some work done, getting a little stir crazy here at home. Want to get outside and, and actually looking forward to the long weekend coming up here. So. It, you know, I think you've been getting outside social distancing <laughs> just fine based upon your social media feed. Um, you've, you've been fishing and turkey hunting. You've had a good spring. Yeah, I can't complain. I uh, I shouldn't say I'm cooped up at home all the time, just working constantly. I, I've i been trying to self-isolate in the woods as much as possible, <laughs> you know? So and it, when you're in the woods turkey hunting, you're away from the news, you're away from everything else. It's a great place to be. And so that's what I've been doing. So for folks, uh, thanks for tuning in. We're going to talk with Matt about his background because he's got a really unique background it's kind of dirty in a way because uh he's he's a lawyer by training we'll go into that in a moment (laughs) but uh we've got a fun promotion going on right now with cubby rise so i thought it would be a good time to connect with matt uh but like i said matt's got a really fun history ton of bird hunting expertise we're gonna talk about his his background and some of uh his favorites in the world of of uh, wing shooting and upland birds and uh you know we'll, we'll also get into a a new purchase he made that i've been thinking about and i bet you there's uplanders all across the uh america thinking about given the quarantine and the virus uh, and what i'm alluding to is he he purchased a a trailer for his bird hunting adventure. So we'll get into that at the end, but let's start. Um, let's start with your backstory, Matt. Um, I, I teased it. You got this, this dirty underbelly, <laughs> which, which I say in jest, purely in jest, but it, you, you have a law degree. So I want, like, let's start with where you grew up, um, and where you, you know, kind of cut your teeth in the outdoors and then take me to college and, and what you were planning to do with your life and when it went, where it went so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a little dirty to be honest with you. I'll give you the, the PG version. <laughs> no, I grew up, you know, I'm a Minnesota boy. I'm a Homer. I grew up in, in a small town of Pelican Rapids, Minnesota. Okay. In, in West Central Minnesota, in between Detroit Lakes and Fergus Falls, just a, a small little town. Um, and I learned about the outdoors from my, my family. Um, my grandpa was a hunter and a fisherman. He passed traditions on to my dad, who then passed them on to me. And, uh, and now I have a nine-year-old boy, too. So I'm looking forward to um, passing on to him as well. But Falcon Rapids was a great place to, to grow up. We had a cabin in the North Woods, not too far from there, where we could go fishing, deer hunting, and grouse hunting. And then my uncle lived in North Dakota, um, and we'd take annual treks out there to do pheasant hunt, hunting out there every year as well. So 
Um, that's kind of my outdoors background. It's just been a family, family deal. And then uh, um, when I was in high school, the only lawyer in my little town kind of took me under his wing. Hmm. And I got, I interned with him for a couple of years. I went to trials and mediations and sort of um, formulated a passion for the practice of law through him. And I always knew I wanted to go to grad school. Um, at that time, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I, I liked school and I wanted to keep going. So I went to undergrad at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis and um, kind of went through the motions for four years, knowing that I was going to go to law school at that time. And I actually did. I went to law school at William Mitchell College of Law in St. Yeah. Paul. Um, I met my wife there. Um, she's a lawyer now as well, which is kind of interesting. And then Actually, after my law school time, I moved back to Pelican Rapids, where I grew up, and started uh, or joined a practice there. We had an office in Pelican Rapids and Fergus Falls as well, and I did that for about eight years. And it was right about the time that I turned 30, um, I had what I call a young life crisis. And I just kind of saw down the, the future of what the next 40 years of my life was going to be. And I didn't want to do... I didn't want to do divorces and family law and real estate and criminal law and all that stuff for the rest of my life. And my passion had always been for the outdoors and for writing. And I decided to jump ship at that time. It was honestly kind of crazy. A lot of people told me I was crazy, but luckily my wife was a lawyer and had a good job. And she's one of the most um, understanding people <laughs> in the world to allow me to, to take that jump. But, but I went for it. So, um, my friend Jay Hansen from Montana sort of inspired me to get into the magazine business. Hmm. He had started a magazine in Montana um, before me, and he kind of walked me through how to do it. And so at that time, I started the Minnesota Sporting Journal, um, financed it all myself, started it from scratch all myself, which was in and of itself kind of crazy and something I'd never advise anybody else to do either, honestly. <laughs> but so for a couple of years, I double teamed it. I was a lawyer. And I ran the Minnesota Sporting Journal for a couple of years. And that kind of springboarded me into, I guess, the outdoor industry and the publishing industry and things like that. So Yeah. I tease about the uh, the lawyer attorney background. But, you know, that was once upon a time, that's the direction I was heading. You know, I have an English uh, degree, uh, which is a pretty common pathway for lawyers. So, and you come across, and I assume you've come across more of them than even I do because you do have a law degree and you start talking with outdoor writers and journalists and there's an awful lot of folks with a law background that end up in the outdoors. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the outdoors is a natural escape from some of the daily stressors that we all have in mm -hmm. our in our regular jobs and especially with law, it's definitely a stressful, stressful job to have. And the outdoors is an escape for that. And then I, th I like to think the legal, my legal experience and my uh, legal writing experience helps me with what I do now. I'm um, being very detail oriented. It helps me with on the editing side for sure. And then even with the writing side too, um, sometimes with writing and writing stories and creative writing, I tend to be a little more um, detailed than I need to be, maybe a little yeah. more than I need to be. And I try, need to try to dial that back just a hair. But where it helps me is it helps me formulate um, storytelling, so to speak. When I was writing legal briefs and arguments, you have to for format it so that it has 
um, logical transitions that are mm -hmm. persuasive to try to get a judge or another lawyer to agree with what you're saying. And so that helps me formulate a creative story. It has to have a clear intro, logical transitions, something that's compelling and persuasive in a way, and then something that wraps up at the end um, to sort of communicate the overall meaning of what you're trying to tell. So mm -hmm. like, I, I, I like to think that it kind of helps me maybe be a little more um, organized and strategic in the way I write things. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Minnesota Sporting Journal kind of paved the way to this outdoor career that you, you started to build. The next step on your path was the Rough Grouse Society, correct? Yep. Yep. I uh, did the Minnesota Sporting Journal for three years, and then I noticed that RGS had um, an editor position open, and so I applied. I think my publishing experience and then my legal experience helped me get that job. And I ended up working with RGS for about seven years. Mm -hmm. Started as the editor and ended as the director of communications. Um, so my main job was to make sure that the magazine got published. But I also helped with other things like marketing, contracts, communications, writing, press releases, kind of a jack of all trades for RGS. And I really enjoyed that position. And, I, and RGS is, is a place that I miss, to be real honest with you. I mean, as you know, all the good things that you do every day. I mean, you're in marketing and writing and you do a little bit of everything too, but you, you have the sense of um, accomplishment in a way when you know you're giving back to the resources that you care about. And when you have a job and you're able to do that every day, that's, that's a, a really special thing. So yeah. Yeah. It feels like you're doing a, something for a greater purpose than a, hitting a bottom line. You're, it's sort of your entire life, uh, you become sort of single-minded in every aspect of your life is around that position, right? Because even your free time, which you enjoy so much, you know, getting out in the woods or in the field or the, you know, with your, with your dog, you know, you're only one step removed, sometimes not even removed from, from, from the job, right? Yeah, and I used to say, you know, if I'm carrying my camera when I'm hunting – I can argue that I was working still mm -hmm. like um, and, and I also think I think you get that sense maybe from working for any nonprofit that's that's working for a good cause. But I feel extra lucky that I'm actually getting to do it in the outdoors world and specifically mm -hmm. in the world of upland hunting. Like if you ever hear me complain about any of that stuff, just slap me because, <laughs> you know, you get to you get to work in the world that you love every day. And, and mm -hmm. So. And, and, and you know, I've known you long enough to know that that was a terrific job, but it was a challenge from the travel perspective, right? Like you were you were commuting between, uh, is it south of Pittsburgh is where the RGS um, headquarters is? Yeah, just west of Pittsburgh. West yeah. of Pittsburgh to to Brainerd, and you were you were on planes, trains, and automobiles every month, right? Yeah. Um, actually, when I started, I, I lived there primarily for about six months. And While I, your family was in Brainerd. That's exactly right. And I, I came back every two weeks for the weekend um, to get my foot in the door and everything. Um, I made some of those sacrifices. My boy was really young at the time, but I, I just felt that the opportunity was a good one for me and it ended up being a good decision to make. But then thereafter, I, I was in Pittsburgh at least one to two weeks every month. So mm -hmm. I was 
traveling back and forth, spending a lot of time in there. I had a lot of responsibilities um, that I had to take care of there. And it's, you know, working from home is, is a good thing, but there's also some value with being in the office with people and getting things done that way too. So it ended up, ended up working out. For me. Mm-hmm. I, I, you brought up uh, your, your son a couple of times and um, you know, when you, Every time you talk about him, obviously a smile comes across your face. So, uh, uh, tell me your son's name and in kind of as a nine-year-old, I'm I've seen on Facebook that he's starting to go along with you. And maybe not starting. He's been along with you for the pretty much the duration of his nine years. Whether it's trout fishing, turkey hunting, sitting in the blind watching grouse drum. Um, what's that experience been like being a, a father? to a youngster into the, the uplands. Yeah. My, my boy's name is Liam. He is nine years old right now. So he's, he's sort of at that age where he can, he can keep up, so to speak, you know, like he's got, got enough energy and he's big enough where he can keep up and we can go for hikes and grouse hunt and walk the trails and, and, and he's got enough patience now where he can, you know, sit in the boat for a couple hours and we can have an enjoyable fishing adventure and things like that. So that it's, it's really fun. Like I was thinking about it the other day. I, my dad did the same thing for me when I was that age. And now I just turned 40 and, and now it's almost like I'm the one in control um, for, for passing those traditions on to my boy, but also with trying to like urge my dad to, come along and do things with me at that point. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny how in life those transitions happen. My dad used to do it to me. Now I'm the boss, so to speak. And I'm trying to get my dad and his grandson out as much as possible in the future. So it's been it's been really fun. I hope it keeps going. Well, and, and I remember a story from some of the early year, or the, I think it was maybe the second year you were at RGS, where I believe you hunted in Louisiana for Woodcock with your dad. Is your dad live down south, or did he take that trip with you? No, he lives in uh, Houston, Texas now. Okay, so he uh, he's been there for I think about five or six years, and so and that's an annual trip I try to take every year. I drive all the way from Minnesota to um, Texas, and then um, we do it over the New Year time, right in the middle of the uh, Texas and Louisiana woodcock season, and I'm it's an ex- I mean, it's kind of crazy to drive 20 hours with your dogs to go hunt a woodcock. And <laughs> like but I, it's it's a good excuse for me to, to keep hunting with my dad. I don't get a lot. As, since he's so far away, I don't get to do it as much as I'd like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's a good time to do it every year. So, so I'm taking us down this tangent. I got to know what woodcock hunting in Louisiana. I mean, are you in the the bayous with all this moss hanging off the trees? I mean, tell me about it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, I'm a Minnesota boy and I, so I'm used to the Northwoods and hunting woodcock and young aspen cuts. Um, it's not hard to find asp or a woodcock cover up here once you do it a few times just through trial and error. But down there, it's a whole different ball game. Um, and it took me, I didn't get a lot of insight or do a lot of research. I kind of just figured it out on my own. And the, it's, there's no aspen cuts down there, obviously. So you got to find them in different types of habitat. Um, and we hunted mostly Texas, actually. Um, hmm. The Piney Woods of Texas is where we go on public land. And uh, you find them in, they like water, just like anything else, and soft, loamy soils. And they need enough cover to hide from from uh, predators. So 
um, river bottoms. I mean, it's it's almost like hunting beaver ponds around here. You know, so you hear mm -hmm. some people they go find grouse around the beaver ponds, but around the alder, around beaver ponds. It's the same down there. Just if you walk streams, walk edges of rivers, um, where they kind of dip down, and there's there there's um, various uh, vegetation species that get pretty thick vines, cane, all of that stuff. You'll find the birds in there and it's like the craziest thing. Once mm -hmm. you, especially with a pointing dog, it helps out a lot and you can stumble upon woodcock without even really knowing it. And your dog goes on point and maybe the beeper goes off and, and you get lucky sometimes. So. And how often do you uh, run into quail when you're doing that? Uh, in the areas we go, not very often. Okay. Too wet. Yeah. Too wet. And, and just not, I think it's a little bit for too far south and maybe okay. a little too far east for for the areas where I know there's quail down there. Okay. So, it, you know, the kind of the the excuse for getting you on the podcast is the next evolution in, in your career, and that's as the editor of Covey Rise, which um, John Thames, the owner and publisher of Covey Rise, happens to be a national board member for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And you know, he, he, he kind of offered up a really exciting promotion that benefits our organization's habitat mission and um, helps to introduce some of our audience to, to Covey Rise. Tell us about that. Yeah. So we're, we're an outdoor magazine and conservation for Covey Rise is really at the heart of what we do. Um, we have, we run conservation articles a lot. Um, there's, there's a, there's a theme within the features you'll notice when you read articles from Covey Rise that sort of are conservation based. And so, and you, you mentioned it too, with, with our natural relationship with Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever through John being on the board, we, we, conservation is something that's very important to us. And in many ways, our lives have been put on hold um, for the last couple months um, due to the coronavirus pandemic, mm -hmm. everything that's, associated with that. And, and as we all know, unfortunately, a, a side effect of that is a severe um, difficulty for conservation organizations to do their typical fundraising activities at this time of year. And so I kind of look at it like our lives have changed, but the idea of conservation um, hasn't or the need for conservation hasn't. And so we want to try to help keep the, uh, the wheels of conservation rolling down the road. So the basis of the, the promo is for, for every Covey Rise subscription um, that's purchased by Quill Forever or Pheasants Forever members, um, and Covey Rise subscriptions are $60, um, Covey Rise is donating back 50% uh, of that or $30 for every subscription back to quail forever and pheasants forever for their conservation activities and the beauty of this and again in my mind is if you get you get a subscription to a quality magazine that's a tangible item that's mailed to your mailbox six times a year that includes um, stories and photos from the uplands of, of things that we all love but not only that are you you are giving back to conservation too at the same time especially at a critical time for conservation organizations when they need it. And so it's kind of a win-win. Hopefully it helps as much as possible. Um, and uh, again, conservation is at the core of what we do and we wanna help out as much as we can. So. Yeah, it's an extremely generous promotion. Uh, and 
at, just as a clarification, we love for our members to consider this, but you don't actually have to be a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever. If you're listening to this podcast or follow us on social media and you get a hold of this code, go for it uh, because you are going to help generate revenue. And that code, so you go to CoveyRise, CoveyRise.com um, or is it CoveyRiseMagazine.com? I don't remember. CoveyRiseMagazine.com. And here's your promo code. So get out your pen and pencil. The code is CPFQF1. Pretty pretty easy, right? CPFQF1. You enter that code and uh, 50% of your subscription to the Covey Rise publication, which is beautiful, phenomenal, uh, terrific writing, gorgeous photography. It, it goes deeper than a lot of other Upland publications on the culture side of things. There's t- typically, um, you know, a feature around food, a feature around bourbon or some some form of wine or liquor, right? And a lot of a lot of travel. So it's a kind of a a little different take than the uh, traditional. Um, outdoors publication just wonderfully done and uh and matt's responsible for putting it together and a hell of a good guy so uh thanks to john for um john thames for for offering up this promotion it's incredibly incredibly generous so that code again c p f q f one at coveyrisemagazine.com as we transition i want to talk maybe tell us a little bit more about your vision for Covey Rise as the editor. I talked a little bit about how there's more sort of culture and travel and food and, and bourbon. What's uh you know you you're responsible for that direction? Where where do you see Covey Rise? What what's your niche and where are you going to take it over the course of the next few years? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll if okay, I'll, I'll back up just a hair. When I when I left RGS. To join Covey Rise, I had known John for quite a while through conservation and various things when we worked together. And Covey Rise for me gave me a great opportunity to um, focus on what I really truly love, and that's like publishing and editorial. And so with Covey Rise, I get to um, just focus on words, commas, sentences, storytelling. I get to work with amazing writers and amazing photographers to help put the magazine together. But it's definitely not just me. We have a, a really great team um, at the headquarters in Alabama. Um, we all wear some different hats, but we help put the overall uh, magazine together. And, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I think the overall publication quality of this magazine is is pretty good and something that we all take pride in putting together. But um, to answer your question, then going forward, um, Cubby Rise is unique in that it celebrates the upland overall upland experience. So we have articles all the way from hardcore hunting type articles to, you know, when the hunt is over, then what? You know, maybe maybe you're at a lodge and you get to eat um, fine food and and drink bourbon and toast to a good day hunting and you're telling stories with your friends, maybe by a fire or something like that. That part of the experience is something that we think is very important as well and something that I enjoy as well. And so we want to tell those stories too at the same time. So um, you're going to see that continuing as we go forward. Um, hardcore hunting, 
really good storytelling and then other things that celebrate the overall traditions too. So cool. So we, you know, you've gone from Minnesota Sporting Journal, Rough Grouse Society, Covey Rise. You're, uh, you've traveled the country as in, have you traveled outside the um, U.S. to bird hunt? I have okay. not. So, no. so we're going to focus on the United States, which is a big place. And I want to get, you know, you've got all these experiences writing stories and putting these publications together. So I want to talk about your favorites, your favorites of the uplands. And, you know, let's start with the fa- your favorite story you ever covered and, and wrote about for any of the publications? I had two and okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. The, the old one is um, one of the first features I wrote for the RGS magazine and it was called A Huckleberry Grouse Tale. And it was a, just a silly story about teenagers um, taking a boat on a river with their guns to hunt birds, to camp, and then there's also a sort of a story about girls woven in there, and it, it and it's 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 loosely based on on a true story from me and my friends growing up in Pelican Rapids, floating the um, Pelican River back in the day. But I, I enjoy that story. I don't even think it's that great, honestly. But um, but I ended up winning an award through the Outdoor Writers Association of America for that one, and it ended up getting like the president's choice award or something and I don't, I don't say that to boast in any way but that was a long time ago sort of at the time when I wanted to write more features like that and it was just like a, a symbol to me that hey maybe at the time I didn't know what the heck I was doing but it sort of like transitioned me to hey maybe I'm kind of on to something with this so it gave me a lot more confidence to uh, push forward with some of that stuff and then a newer story I wrote for Cubby Rise um, was a feature a personality feature about Johnny Morris the uh, owner of um, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's. I had the pleasure to hunt with Johnny um, in South Dakota last fall and wrote a feature about him that was just published in the Cubby Rise, the most recent Cubby Rise magazine. And that was a pleasure to hunt with Johnny to get to know him a little bit. And then to be able to put my name on that feature in Cubby Rise magazine about him was was a pleasure for me. So, yeah, that was a great story. Yeah. Thank Congratulations. you. Um, your favorite bird to hunt. So you're going to alienate somebody here. Oh, well, that's an easy one. I got to go. I got to go with the rough grouse. Yeah. Uh, Living I'm in not- Brainerd, growing up in Brainerd and writing for Rough Grouse Society. I knew that would be the answer. It's ingrained in, in what I do being living in the Northwoods. So that's hopefully people won't hold that against me. <laughs> Is there a most memorable rough grouse in your in your history that you kind of look back on and say that meant the most to me. Yeah. Um, there's a few, one that sticks out in my mind was probably the first, the first grouse that my older setter, his name's Blitz. The first grouse he pointed, hmm. um, it was a long, long time ago now, but that one sticks in my mind. I remember exactly where we were on the trail in the exact trail in the exact place. I remember that almost everything that happened with that. And it, it was, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a professional dog trainer and, and he pointed a grouse and I actually shot it, <laughs> which was, which is not always happening, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that one that sticks in my mind. Yeah. For sure. so. Well, you said you uh, spent time in North Dakota growing up. Um, 
So I'm assuming primarily pheasants, maybe you got into some Sharpies and Huns, but what, what's the, it, maybe it's not North Dakota, but what's the pheasant that jumps to your mind is the most memorable. Um, my uncle was a, a street supervisor. He worked for a little town out around the Dickinson area. And uh, we'd go out there every year and camp, stay in, right in his yard. And it was with my dad and his his cronies were a bunch of regular guys. You know, we, we had a menagerie of different dog breeds and we'd just go out and hunt public land. And there was one time with those guys and I was young and they, they kind of took me under their wing and showed me how to do it. And there was one time when I was just a kid and we, were, we went on a death march and it was late season and it was brutal. We didn't hardly see any birds. And we, it's funny how that happens, but we got close back to the truck and my uncle's black lab named Hoss flushed a bird maybe a hundred yards from the truck. And I actually shot it in front of all these old guys. And <laughs> you know, the, the, the smiles on their faces, the fact that the kid got the bird. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just kind of a cool cool experience. So. Well, I got to round it out with you. Uh, I'm assuming you didn't start hunting quail until you started working for Cover Your Eyes. Maybe I'm wrong, but so it's probably a little bit more recent. What what quail has been the most memorable um, one for you? Oh, that's a good question. I I took a I took a solo trip to Nebraska. Um, did a little research. Went by myself. Um, shot a quail on public land like the first morning I went out and, uh, I didn't find many after that, to be honest with you. But when I got that quail, having, having done it sort of by myself, self-scouted, do it yourself, finding the everything, Mm -hmm. I was pretty proud of that bird. I'm still, I wasn't that great at it at the time, but I was still proud of that bird. Where, where's your favorite place to bird hunt? Um, being a typical curmudgeon of a rough grouse hunter, I don't like, I don't diverge my specifics. I love central Minnesota. Honestly. Uh-huh. I mean, there's just some, there, there's been authors who have written books about central Minnesota grouse hunting. It's not far from where I grew up and where I live. And so there's just a, I go to, I go to trails that I remember hunting when I was a kid and they're all grown up now. Yeah. They have cut, but I still hunt them because I remember, I can go back and re- remember some of those memories and some of the points and flushes and misses and all the things that I had in the past. And I still hunt them, even though there's not that many birds there anymore. You, so. you uh, nickname them, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I have, I still use old plat books, honestly. Okay. Yeah. And so I have my notes written in my plat books and I have my plat books locked up so nobody else can see them. <laughs> <laughs> and and my, my dad says, my dad says, you know where Matt's best spots are in the plat book by finding the pages with the most coffee stains. Huh. Um, so, you know, anyway. What's your uh, your go-to shotgun? Um, Right now, I, I a couple of years ago, I bought an old Fox that I kind of like just for a traditional old gun. I want to, I want to collect more guns in the future. I just haven't gone down that road as much, but I got that old Fox. And then, uh, um, honestly, for people that are looking for maybe a, 
a side-by-side that is a little more affordable. I, I kind of like the CZ side-by-sides, to be honest with you. Um, they're, they're reasonably priced. They're pretty solid. And uh, and I can actually shoot with the one I have a little bit. It's probably the gun I can shoot the best with, to be honest. I bought the um, CZ Sharptail last year yeah. with a 28-gauge side-by-side, and it's a really nice to hold yeah. that gun. And uh, like you, it... I kind of shoot it pretty good, which is, yeah. I, you know, you hear so many people talking about, ah, it's challenge to shoot a side by side. For some reason, that thing just fits the heck out of me. It's, it's been yeah. really effective. Yeah. And I'll, I'll pick a gun that I can shoot well with, as opposed to picking a more fancy gun, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Like, I just like, I, I just like having the confidence that you can, even if it's an 870 or something like mm-hmm. that, pick the gun that you can shoot the best. And then I, I have a more enjoyable experience when I do that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, setters once so far, but you're pretty diehard setter guy, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I like setters. Um, I, I don't apologize for it. <laughs> How many do you have right now? I have two. I had two. I've had as many as three. Um, I had two. My my older dog is nine, and my younger dog is a is a Spitfire of a two year old. So lots of energy. But I like setters. I they're sort of a classic traditional grouse hunting dog. I like the way they look. Um, I like the way they run. I like how they range. They just fit the way I like to hunt, which is different for everybody. You yep. know, that's why everybody picks different breeds. But for me, they work. Do you uh, train your setters to retrieve? Um, I'm not a very good trainer, to be real frank with you. My older dog isn't very good at retrieving, but my my younger dog is um, does it naturally and trying to take advantage of that as much as I I can. So, um, but personally, uh, retrieving for for setters for me isn't isn't a priority, right? It's a, it's a bonus if it if it happens. Yeah, that's why, that's I, why I bring it up because there's yeah. an awful lot of you know diehard setter folks that don't believe it's in the yeah. best interest of a setter to yeah. retrieve. Be just they prefer that that dog stand solid on point to point to to you know to flush to shoot and yeah. you know they're more worried about holding that head up high and the tail up high and they yeah. don't give a rip about the retrieve. Yep. And so yep. it, the point you made, I think, is the most important point for anybody when they decide on a bird dog is what it, what you want for you. I mean, I know I talk short hairs a fair amount and I like my short hairs, but I, I love all bird, bird dog breeds. And I think it what's critical is knowing what you want to hunt, where you want to hunt them and what you want out of that dog and to each their own. Yeah, I think that's important for for bird dog breed choices and, and for gun choices or, and you know, gear choices, whatever, like there's nobody's really, nobody's really going to judge you. I don't think yeah. based on how you want to do it. And it's important just to make those d- decisions based on what's best for you. It's October 15th, let's say, and you got uh, a Saturday all to yourself. You get to decide what you're going to do and who you're going to do it with. If anybody, yeah. What do you, what's your choice? What are you going to, what are you going to go do and who are you going to go do it with? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm going to, 
I'm going to hope that I flew my dad up from Texas a few days before. Um, he's my main hunting partner um, and getting older, obviously. Not too old, but um, I want to try to take advantage of as many days with him as I can. Um, and then we're probably going to first go woodcock hunting hmm. before, the, before the woodcock fly away. Uh, I, I, try, I love woodcock hunting, and I try to take advantage of the flights and their timing as much as possible before they migrate down south. So good choice. <laughs> it's nice to hunt with dad. Try to explain like for folks that never hunt woodcock, you know, I, I always think woodcock is one of the most underrated as it, let's just say it, it's the most underrated upland bird in the mix. Cause there's, there's great debate. We could debate till, you know, I run out of recording time on this podcast um, application about the king of upland right you know and you can start a feverish debate feverish debate between rough grouse bob white quail and pheasants and you're never going to win they're all kings right nobody ever heralds the woodcock as the king but it's no doubt the most underrated why do you love woodcock so much i i love them because they're close by I don't have to travel very far from where I live, luckily, to get into some really good woodcock hunting when they're here. Um, you can hunt them during the prime time of the year. So they are here, and the best woodcock hunting is right after the leaves fall hmm. uh, in Minnesota, which is in October, October 15th, roughly, like just like you said. And that is sort of the magical month for upland hunting where I'm at. So you can hunt them during that time. They're here at that time. I can hunt them close to home at that time. And they're, they're great for pointing dogs too, especially teaching young dogs. My young dog, I try to get them on woodcock as much as I possibly can. They, they're there, they're relative, it's relatively easy to find the habitat and they hold tight for a young dog. They don't, I mean, they move, they'll move, but they don't run like a rough grouse does or like a pheasant does or some other birds. So um, those are, and, and one other thing too is, you know, I try to, I try to take out new, new hunters sometimes, um, to get them into the uplands or, you know, and, and woodcock are a great upland bird to introduce either new hunters or young hunters on the sport. You can, you can set it up with a pointing dog and, and, you know, dictate where people go and you can get safe shots and everything and really kind of light that switch for people to get addicted to all the things that we like to do. Yeah. So. Uh, favorite wild game meal? Um, I'm not a great cook. I'll, I'll say that first, but, um, since we're on the woodcock train, I, I love woodcock legs. Hmm. Um, I think woodcock legs are underrated as well as, as a cuisine. I'll, I'll grill them. I'll fry them. I'll put them in, put a bunch in, in the crock pot, just a little bit of everything, but they're, as you know, woodcock legs are actually white meat. So yep. they're opposite birds. Their breasts are dark meat, but their legs are white meat. And lots of people don't save them. And I think everybody should save them. If people don't save them, take them over to my house. Yeah. They're, they're the, the only downside uh, to woodcock legs, because you're right, they're, they're white meat. They're terrific. They, they stay moist. But you need more than your possession limit to actually make a meal. <laughs> Because they they are so small. Yeah, that is true. 
to. Yeah, don't go over your limit. Yeah. <laughs> don't go over your limit. But, enjoy yeah. that, you them, so. <laughs> but if somebody, your hunting partner's cleaning them and not going to keep the legs, then uh, fry those suckers up because they are wonderful. Um, you know, wildlife artist. Yeah, with, with Rough Grouse Society and Cover as you probably have come across a lot of different painters, sculptors, carvers. Um, you know, who um, who who is hanging on your wall? Yeah, that's a I'm actually getting a piece framed as we speak. Um by Lou Pasqua. Hmm. Is a is a guy I like a lot. And I like a lot of artists and I've worked with a lot of different artists on on you know pieces for the magazine or for articles specifically um so it's hard to pick one out but i do like lou because i got to know him when i was working he's from the pittsburgh pennsylvania area close to where the rgs headquarters is and that's sort of where i got to know him and he has an interesting backstory and is somebody that cares about conservation and gives has given back to conservation a lot over the years which i i definitely give him credit for and then and then I, uh, I wrote an article about Lou for Cubby Rise, which came out a few issues back, which was really fun to get to know him even more. And you know, one more thing about Lou, he, he, does, he has a little bit different style and he calls it like, I might get this wrong, but it's like impressionistic realism or hmm. something like that. And that might be wrong, but the, the idea is he doesn't paint every fine-tuned detail of the piece you don't see every hair of the dog or anything it's it's more real so he wants to depict what is the experience like when you're actually seeing it with your own eyes in the woods hmm. so you'll you'll see his paintings with like a dog on point and a bird flushing and the dog's in detail and the bird's in detail but everything else around it is blurry almost yeah. like Almost like you're in the woods and you're seeing it in real time and you actually get to see the action. When you see a flush like that, everything around you is blurry. I guarantee it. And he that, he tries to communicate that feeling through his painting. I, I think he's the painter a couple years ago for Siwi, the Southeastern Wildlife Expo, a Boykin Spaniel with a bobwhite. That was hit, that was Lou, right? Yep, that was him. Yep, He was the featured artist for that event. Yeah, he has a really, really unique um, approach, and it is it is beautiful. Yep, yep. Uh, all right, it, we, we talked a little bit about underrated, very controversial. What's the most overrated thing in the uplands? Oh, that, <clears throat> that's a tough one. I, I, uh, I think we touched on it a little bit before but it's so i think i think it's like the mentality to for for people to feel like you have to do certain things a certain way in the uplands hmm. i think that is um overrated and it's like the breed choice or the way you look or what kind of shotgun you have i think all of that that feeling is overrated i think you need to um nobody really cares about that in my mind and this is something i think about all the time um do what's best for you and and uh, just go for it. Um, I, I think it's important that we encourage as many upland hunters to get out and about as possible. And when people feel like they have to do it a certain way, it inhibits and it, it inhibits the uh, the initiative in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, that ties right into the next question. I was going to ask you for two bits of advice. 
you already given one. What's another bit of advice for for the uplands from you know that you would offer somebody that's get, kind of getting into it new? Yeah. So basically, it's it's like you don't know if you don't go, um, and then and then enjoy yourself when you're there. Um, you don't need much to get into the uplands. You know, you you, you need a shotgun and a pair of boots, really. Mm-hmm. And luckily where we live, you don't have to travel that far to find public land and hunt. Right. Dogs are great, but you don't even need a dog. Um, just, just go for it. I've, I've learned, I've found some of my best spots and had some of my most favorite hunts, just hunting all by myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could have sat, I could have sat on the couch watching the Vikings game on a Sunday instead and got my heart broken. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, why would you do that? <laughs> but but I, you don't know if you don't go. You, you yeah. can't sit on the couch. So just, <laughs> just go for it. And you, it, it's amazing how those experiences are, are addicting. And once you do it and you get lucky, your trial and error becomes addicting. And hopefully you'll keep doing it in the future yeah. too. So, so I, right on there with you that you don't need a whole lot of things. But I did see on Facebook that you did add a new piece of gear to the Soberg uh, arsenal for this. And I'm assuming it's for this fall because I was just like literally the night before you posted this photo of a new trailer. Uh, and I, I can only I describe it as a bird hunting trailer for kind of a guy and his dog. It, it's not a huge thing. It's probably going to sleep one and probably your two setters may or may not sleep in there with you. Uh, but I was talking about this concept the night before with my wife, Meredith, just like, you know, so many unknowns around the virus and how long this social distancing is going to have, you know, be in place and, you know, concern around staying in hotels and like, boy, we maybe should be thinking about a trailer for this fall. And then boom, Soberg posts a photo of a trailer. I'm a, I'm assuming you you had a similar thought process, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I my my mindset was I I want to travel more and be safe and outside based on the current circumstances, and I want I want to be I want to be like a the ultimate weekend warrior, mm. <laughs> so to speak, and like do more overnight trips. Um, Sleeping in a tent is is okay, and I've done that plenty. But I was my mindset was to find something simple and relatively reasonably priced that I could that would um, give me the the ability to travel more and do more weekend warrior type trips. So I found I've been looking for a while, and I found this this trailer used online. I got a good deal on it, and honestly, I found it, it was down by Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, really? So I. My wife thinks I'm crazy, but I drove all the way down there to pick it up and drove all the way back home. Um, And I call it, I call it my little trout and grouse house. So I envision, I envision trips with me and the dogs and my boy, maybe going down for overnighters, maybe fishing trout in the driftless of Wisconsin, or I'd like to hunt further North in Minnesota sometimes and make it easy instead of doing a long day trip, maybe do some overnights up up by, you know, I don't know, up, up Northeast somewhere. Um, so that's kind of the game plan. So, so, you know, you bought it used, 
there's no sponsors involved. So uh, tell us, I haven't done any research yet. What's the, what's the ballpark that a person should be thinking about from a dollar perspective and some of the bells, whistles, features that you might need or you might not need and how you arrived at the one you purchased? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. They, they, they come in all shapes and sizes with a lot of different um, variables to them. And the bells and whistles are the big thing. So uh, this one is bare bones. Um, it has a nice, one thing I think you're, you'll want to look for is a nice frame. A trailer company made this frame, so it's solid. Some of them that are built and sold now are put on like uh, small metal utility trailers. Hmm. And those aren't as solid for long travel and they tend to rust out a lot quicker that's one thing for people to think about and then the price range is anywhere probably from a really really cheap one is probably around three thousand dollars and you can go all the way up to fifteen thousand dollars probably for a small camper like this and this is just like the the teardrop style Mm -hmm. for people that that's kind of what we're talking about here and the ones that get up closer to ten thousand dollars they have air conditioning and heat and lights and and all of that some of them have fridges and stoves and you can get as fancy as you want with them but for me it's more of a like a simple you know i need lights and a place to keep me warm and out of the rain Mm -hmm. basically so pretty pretty straightforward have you used it at a trip yet uh no but i'm planning on taking it out yeah me and my boy are gonna go up up north a little bit and uh camp next to a, a little trout lake that has rainbow and brook trout and just kind of test it out finally for an overnighter awesome so, yeah uh well that opens it transitions nicely into what what's on the covey rise 2020 hunting calendar where where are you heading next yeah, so we um, we're working on fall plans now. Um, sort of waiting with bated breath, depending on travel restrictions and some of those things that are going to be involved. You know, some places might not be open, some might be. We're trying to work through some of those things, but I think a trip out west for sure, probably Montana, mm-hmm. to kill a bunch of birds with with one stone out there. Um, and then I'm we're making plans way far out ahead of time on features for for the magazine into 2021 and beyond so it looks like looks like it's going to be a good good fall hopefully again like we keep alluding to um hunting outside is a great place to be for for those purposes so we'll figure that out for me um i'm gonna hunt around home as much as possible um head west as much as possible and uh, try to use my camper <laughs> find excuses <laughs> as much as uh, all right, folks, I'll remind you one more time, CoveyRiseMagazine.com. Uh, if you use the code CPFQF1, they will, in they being CoveyRise, John Thames, Matt Soberg, and the crew will be donating 50% of your subscription back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's conservation mission. Uh, I've had a lot of lot of fun talking with you, Matt. Uh, any closing thoughts uh, for our for our listeners out there? Just one quick thing about the the promo. Um, I hope people give back to conservation as much as possible these days. I, I think it's important and it's a critical thing. 
I, I look at it this way. I was going to go to various um, conservation banquets yeah. this spring. I wasn't able to because they were canceled. And I, I was going to pay $60 for tickets. When you go to a conservation banquet like that, you pay $60. Half of it roughly goes to the meal that you, you get. And the rest of it goes to the conservation initiatives that they're putting forth. And in my mind, I think people that were, were going to be doing that are going are looking for creative ways to give back to conservation. So hopefully people take care of this, take advantage of this promo. They get the magazine in the mail and they give back at the same time. And, and I think it's a good thing. Yeah, right on. And it is a wonderful publication you put together. And I look forward to, uh, to reading upcoming episodes because I've taken advantage of the promo myself. All right, folks. Uh, thank you so much to uh, Matt Soberg for joining us, editor of Covey Rise Magazine. Uh, thanks to listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. Uh, and as always, I'll encourage you to make sure your membership with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is current. You can take advantage of a wonderful offer from Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's on the home pages of each right now. It is unreal offer for your $35 membership. Um, if you sign up through that link, then it, link and it's right on the home page right now, you'll get a $25 gift card to Pheasants Forever and Quail, uh, to $25 gift card to Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's for joining Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So a really Really good couple of promos here with with Covey Rise and the org in our organization. So hopefully, uh, people take Matt's advice and that sixty dollars you are going to spend on conservation, you can spend directly with a couple of these great offers. All right, thank you very much for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I'm Bob Saint Pierre saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening.